listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, that said, you may notice some things look a little different up here. And that's because we're going to do something a little different for the rest of the summer. We're starting our new summer series where instead of taking a book of the Bible and going through it, we're going to take one of the core foundational Christian beliefs, or you could say doctrines, and we're going to walk through it over the next few weeks. And the doctrine we're going to talk about this week is the doctrine of salvation. And I'm so excited about this because, in my opinion, this is one of the most surprising doctrines that's out there. And here's why I say that. I, you know, I think most of us, man, you write this on the board, you see salvation. A lot of people think, myself included, oh, well, that's easy. I got this. Jesus died for my sins. I don't have to go to hell. This is going to be a short sermon. What a great idea. This is going to be awesome. Do you know what's interesting when you start looking at all that's encompassed in our salvation and God's work in us and in the world? Probably no other doctrine has created more domin- denominations than this one and split denominations. So when you start asking questions like, okay, what do you got to do to be saved, to receive this salvation? I have to be baptized. Do I have to observe certain sacraments or certain rituals? How does that work? And churches split over that stuff. Do I have to walk an aisle and, and repeat a prayer? And you know what? I think if we ask some questions of all the individuals here, even if we've been in church a long time and, and, and we know the gospel, some of these questions can get confusing. Questions like, okay, yes, Jesus died for our sins. Why did he live? Did he have to live? Why couldn't God have just like beamed Jesus down right on Calvary, right on that first Easter, right? And let's get down to business, the real important part, and Jesus can die right there. Or did Jesus have to raise again? Does his resurrection somehow impact my salvation? These can be kind of confusing to answer sometimes. And then, you know what, y'all? I think just on a experience heart level. Some of the hardest questions come out of this doctrine. You know, questions like, hey, what about someone who's never heard the gospel, who's never had a chance to repent? Is God really going to condemn that person to hell? Or what about a parent, my sibling, my friend? You know what they used to believe? But they don't anymore. Are they saved? Maybe here this morning you're thinking, what about me? What about me, you know? I used to believe, now I kind of believe. Several years ago, and I got real fired up and real emotional, and man, I went forward and I prayed a prayer. A minute, I think a minute. But I don't seem as on fire now. And you know what? Between now and then, I've made a whole lot of mistakes. Surely that's impacted my standing before God. Am I? Am I saved? So you see real quickly what, what starts out seeing very simple, very low, you know, easy, low-hanging fruit. All of a sudden, maybe we get into some territory we're not sure how to navigate. And so we're going to break that down over the next few weeks. But here's how we're going to start off. We're going to start off by zooming out, kind of taking a 10,000-foot view, an overview of all the Bible teaches about salvation. And here's why we're going to do that. I think most of our mistakes, most of the ways we get confused and tripped up or because we zoom in. So let's say this whole board is all the doctrine of salvation, all the Bible teaches. We tend to zoom in on just one part and make that salvation and neglect a whole lot of the other, the rest of the Bible's teachings. 
You know what we're like when we do that? So it's been a little while now, but not too long ago, our very own Meghan Markle got married to Prince Harry. I'm sure you were all very excited about it. Did anyone go? Anyone make it to the wedding? I didn't make it. Uh, I guess my, my invitation got lost in the mail, but that's fine. But let's say you did. Let's say you made it to the wedding. Let's say we were all there. Y'all, can you imagine what that party was like afterwards, what the reception was like? Can you imagine how just, I mean, the spread of food they must have had and drinks? I mean, it must have been unbelievable. It must have been the greatest, richest banquet the world has ever known. You know what we're like when we just zoom in just on one part of salvation and collect the rest? We're like someone who makes it to the royal wedding banquet and just takes one bite of one appetizer and thinks we've tasted the whole feast. Man, I bet that one bite was awesome, but there's a whole nother feast out there. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And I think a good way to frame the, the, the total of the Bible's teaching on salvation is like this. There's one aspect in one way in which the Bible says our salvation is past. It is a past event. It has happened. It is a done deal. But there's another aspect of salvation that the Bible says is present. It's right here, right now. But then the Bible talks about salvation in a third way. The Bible says salvation is also future. So when the Bible talks about salvation, one way to think about it is it says you have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. That's the sum total of the Bible's teaching on salvation. So let's start here. Let's start with the past, because I think a lot of us, man, we're used to talking about salvation that way, aren't we? You've probably been asked, when were you saved? So you think back, vacation Bible school, or you were 30, and a neighbor, or in college, or wherever it was, you think back, and you think of your salvation as just that, a done deal. It is in the past. It was an event that has already come and gone. It has happened. The big theological word for thinking of salvation as a past, as an event, is justification. We are justified. That's the big theological term for that. And here's what's interesting, y'all. Justification, being justified in the Bible, it's a legal term. And so you go back and look at the original uh, Greek, even the original Hebrew, it was used in contract disputes, legal disputes, things like that. And so when the Bible talks about justification, salvation, it, it's like the Bible saying you have a legal case with God. You, have a le- you and God have a legal issue. And you know what else is interesting? This, this word that means justified, we actually, the same Greek word, we translate to righteous. So one word, we translate it two ways, justice and righteousness. And so you think about someone who is righteous, what does that mean? That means they have upheld the law. They have met whatever the law is, whatever the standard is, they are perfect in regard to that law and to that standard. It's the same word for justified. So when the Bible says you have been justified, it means you have been legally declared righteous by God. So here's one way to think about it. After this is all done and said and gone and done, you end up in the big courtroom in the sky in a legal case with God as the judge. And he's a good judge. He is righteous. He is perfect. He is just. He is truthful. Okay? And you've all seen Law and Order. You know how courtrooms go. The first thing that happens is we bring up evidence. And so they may start with, I don't know, uh, uh, eyewitness testimony. 
And so they bring up all the people who knew you in your life. And they bring evidence and they testify about all the things they saw you do and say and, and everything in your life. And maybe it go, goes well for a little while, but then your little brother gets up there. And, and for like all day, he just recounts all the ways you tortured him, all the things you did to him, all that kind of stuff. And that's bad enough, but then y'all, your mother-in-law gets up there. And we're, that takes a long time. We're there for like weeks with your mother-in-law. And so that goes on and on for months, years. And you think, wow, that's finally over. And they say, oh, uh, you know, we'd also like to now present, uh, we've got some video evidence. We would like to bring forth the video. And so we all, watch, maybe they roll a little screen in heaven. I don't know how they do it. A projector. I don't know. But we just get to watch. We get to watch everything you did. And so we do that for years, and we see all that evidence, and then just when you think you're done, they say, oh, wait, wait, we actually, we have written transcripts of everything you ever thought. And so we sit back down, and for years, we just read everything you ever thought. So when that's finally over, God the judge, it's time for him to issue a verdict. And what is he going to say? Just as important, why is he going to say? what he is going to say. See, Martin Luther, he, he, he kind of was one of the first ones to understand this, this dilemma in Scripture. And this is what really started the Protestant Revolution. This understanding of me, is God going to declare me guilty or innocent? I have a legal issue with God. Let's read Romans 1, 17. Let's get what got the wheels turning for Martin Luther. He says, For in it, that it is the gospel, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So here's what happened. Martin Luther, he read, he got as far as, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And he didn't say amen. He said, "Uh uh-oh, because he knows God is righteous and just, and that's about to be revealed. And we've got all this evidence against me that I'm not. Guess what? That is not going to go well for me, is it? In in that moment that the righteousness of God is revealed and it's time to declare a verdict on you, there's really only two approaches. There's really only two ways you can go, okay? And there's, I mean, there's hundreds of different religions and cults and philosophies and uh, worldviews and ways of living and ways of thinking, but it really only boils, boils down to two things, two approaches. God can answer you in that moment based on what you do, or God can answer you based on what he has done. There's only two options. Every other religion in the world says God is going to answer you based on what you have done. Right? And so I, did, I prayed five times a day. I did alms. I did, I did this. I did, I did all the righteous acts. And so God, that evidence is going to be presented. And God's going to look at that. And he, he, the righteous true judge, is going to say, yeah, this guy, he did all the things. So he is declared righteous. You know what, y'all? That is the way almost everyone lives their lives. Because it makes sense. That absolutely makes common sense. Nothing makes more sense than, hey, I do a bunch of stuff, and I get a bunch of stuff. I work hard, I get paid for it. I study hard, I take the test, I get the grade for it. Surely all of these good things that I'm doing are earning something for me. Isn't that how most of us live our life? And women, the New Testament begs you not to take option A, not to take that option. It actually says there is a better way, option B, what he has done. Let's read Galatians 2.16. Galatians 2.16 says this, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be, there's that word again, justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law. Listen to this. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Who's going to be declared righteous based on what they have done? Nobody. Y'all, I took German for four semesters in college. Four semesters, and I only remember one phrase. That's all I got left. And I remember it because our professor, her name was Frau Abercrombie. She was about four feet tall and mean as a snake. And once a week, she would threaten us. She would say, if anyone's phone goes off in this class, you, on the next exam, you will get eine große dicke Null, which is German for a big fat zero. That's all I remember. Paul is saying here, you know who's going to be declared righteous based on what they've done? A big fat zero. You, me, Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, none of us will be able to be declared righteous based on what we have done. Instead, he says, you can be declared righteous based on what Jesus has done and by your faith in him. There's the option B. Yeah, thank you. Paul goes on to write, he writes in Romans 3, 21 verse 24. And this is, this is what made the light bulb come on for Martin Luther. He read the righteousness of God is going to be revealed. He said, uh-oh, but he kept reading. And this is what started the Protestant Revolution. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested, watch, apart from the law. There is a righteousness now revealed apart from keeping the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through what? Through faith in who? Jesus Christ. For all who believe. A righteousness through faith in another for you, if you believe. For there is no distinction. This is why this is important. This is why option is never going to work. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a what? The gift. See that? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. A way to be righteous justified apart from what you do, but as a gift based on what Jesus has done. Through faith. It's a gift. Why? Because all that testimony we saw of all the bad things we did, all the things my mother-in-law said about me, guess what? It's all been paid for. His death paid for all those sins. But he also lived. He lived a perfectly righteous life. And the scriptures say that life, that righteousness that he earned is a gift us. The, the fancy word is imputed to us. We'll talk about that in the weeks to come. And so, according to what he did, God can rightly declare me righteous, not based on what I did. Now, when does he do that? Maybe, hopefully, one day in the future, he'll declare me that? No, no, no. Watch this. It's been settled. It's been done. Your legal case before God is settled law. It cannot be added to, it cannot be undone, it cannot be taken away from. I love one of my favorite verses in Luke is Luke 18. He, uh, Jesus is talking about, he's talking about a Pharisee and a tax collector, and they both come up to pray. And the Pharisee prays, and y'all, his prayer is essentially summed up in, God, thank you that I'm so awesome. That's pretty much his prayer. Well, then the tax collector steps forward. Let's read in verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
I tell you, watch what happens. I tell you, this man went down to his house, what? Justified, rather than the other. From that moment on, the time he begged for mercy, put his faith in Christ, it was settled law. It was a done deal. He could go home justified now and forever. So here's what the Bible calls us to do as believers with this aspect of our salvation. God says, with this, we rest. We rest here. Now listen, that sounds easy, doesn't it? But man, it's hard to live, isn't it? Isn't it hard to just say, hey, it's settled, it's done there. I can't add or take away how God sees me at all. Men and women, think about this week, just this week. How many times have you tried to earn it? How many times have you thought, well, if I'll I'll just have my quiet time or control my anger or, or do this or do that, but surely God will look down a little more favorably on me. Surely then he will bless me. Maybe some of you are doing it right now. If I get up and go to church, I know I can't do much, but surely if I do that, I can add a little bit to how God sees me. Or maybe you've done the reverse this week. Maybe you've been hopeless, despondent, because you thought, I didn't do any of that stuff I was supposed to do. Surely that takes away from how God sees me. Surely he's just fed up with me. Surely he'll never bless me until I figure those things out. See what we do? Instead of rest in it, we try to add or take away. But y'all, men and women, it's settled. It's settled law. And the Bible calls us to rest in it. Listen, that's amazing, but God's not done. We've just had the appetizer so far. Because our salvation, the Bible says, is also a present reality in our lives. And y'all, this is the part we often neglect. Because often we learn kind of an insurance policy approach to salvation. And you may have heard that. You may have heard it called uh, hell insurance or fire insurance. But think about this. If I buy a life insurance policy, when does that matter to me? Well, it matters in the past that I bought it, right? It'll matter one day in the future when I die. Today, though, what does it matter? What does it impact my life today? Men and women, does your salvation matter in your life right here, right now, today. Scriptures absolutely say that it should. The big fancy theological word for the present aspect of our salvation is sanctification. I'm going to run out of room. I'll do a little hinge. Made it. Sanctification. And here's where we get into trouble. We get into trouble when we think about sanctification as something totally separate. But notice, what are we still talking about? We are still talking about salvation. We are still talking about God's saving work in our lives. You know what the Bible compared it to? It's almost like, uh, like this, like a coin. So I've got a quarter here. I know you can't see it, but trust me, it's a regular quarter. It's got a head. There's George Washington right there. It's got a tails. There are two sides to this coin. How many coins are there? One coin. What happens if I take away one of the sides of this coin if it's blank? Is this, coin, is this quarter of any value to me anymore? No. Can't buy a thing. It does you no good. So what, the Bible kind of talks about it as justification is one side of the coin. Sanctification is the other side. Or you may have heard it, faith and works. The Bible isn't talking about two separate things. It's really talking about one thing. Or here's what I think is a helpful way to think about it. God saves us from something, 
and God saves us to something. So salvation is not just God saves us from hell or from our sin. God saves us to something in the present and in the future. That's how the scripture talks about it. Let's look. Philippians 2, verse 12. Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, listen to this. This is fascinating. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Something that you have, your salvation, there was an event, work it out as a process now. Isn't that interesting? The thing that you have, work it out. You know, just this past week, maybe it was two weeks ago, The Lion King came on TV. And so we let our kids watch The Lion King, uh, especially my youngest. First time she'd ever seen it. And I'm watching this, and I'm singing along, and I'm remembering, man, what a great movie. I love this movie. And there's one part of this that illustrates exactly what Paul's talking about. And it comes when Simba and his friends are singing that great song. Y'all, what's the best song of The Lion King? Don't say, can you feel the love tonight? That's not it. Akuna Matata. What a wonderful phrase. It means no worries for the rest of my days. Adam and the band, they're going to come up and sing it here later. Love that song. But you know what I noticed this time while I'm watching it? While they're singing Akuna Matata and having so much fun, don't have a care in the world, they're also eating grub worms and bugs. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what my Caleb said first service. And there's a, that's a problem because, y'all, the name of the movie is not The Lion Grub Worm Eater. The name of the movie is The Lion King. And he was forsaking what he had been born to do, singing Akuna Matata. So what happens? This half-crazy baboon comes into his life named Rafiki. Rafiki hits him on the head, and he laughs this crazy laugh. I mean, he's clearly half nuts. But what he tells Simba is true. Remember, he takes him to the water, he stirs the water, and Simba sees his dad. What does his dad say to him? This, Simba, you are more than what you have become. You are more, your identity is more than how you're living right now. And so he says, remember who you are. Remember that you're my son. Remember that you're the Lion King. You may not get to see Nakuna Matata anymore. It may be harder, but this is what you're called to live. This is who you are. That's what Paul's saying in Philippians 2. He's saying, you have been adopted as a child of the king. That has settled law has happened. Now live it out. That's what he's saying. See, men and women, it's so important for us to remember, y'all. Salvation is not just in the cloud. It's not just in the ethereal, in the pie in the sky. You know where salvation is? Salvation, it's in your calendar. Salvation is in your checkbook. It's in your thoughts, your decisions, your desires, your marriage, your relationships, your play, and your work. That's where salvation is. So the Bible calls us, with this aspect of our salvation, the Bible calls us to do. is fight. We fight. We absolutely fight. There are... The Bible talks about there there are forces around us trying to keep us from living out who we are. That's the world we live in right now. And so the Bible talks about forces outside of ourselves. We can go to Ephesians 6, 11 through 13. Many of you heard these passages talking about the armor of God. Here's what Paul says. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities 
against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. What's Paul doing there? He's telling us as believers, pick up your armor and fight these forces. And he goes on the list, all the resources we have in Christ, all the things that God has given us to be able to fight these forces. You know what? There's one that I never thought about until this week. So I encourage you to go read the whole passage real quick. We'll skip to verse 17. Verse 17, he says, and take the helmet of what? That's right, the helmet of salvation. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Did you know your salvation is a weapon of war? You know that? Which means what the Bible is trying to tell us, what Paul's trying to tell us, listen, your salvation is not something you fight for. Your salvation is something you fight with. That's what your salvation is. See, you, you put on your salvation, not just one day, hopefully in the future when you die, you put on your salvation today. When you're battling sin, when you're battling depression and anxiety, when you're hard-pressed on every side, when you've been hurt, when you've been wrong, when you want to follow God, but it's really, really hard, you put on your salvation today. So put it on to fight forces outside of us, but you know, we've also got to fight forces inside of us. Some Bible calls the flesh. See, sometimes I don't need anyone's help, thank you very much, in living in sin. I can do that all by myself. So Paul writes in Romans 7, it's a great chapter. I encourage you to go read it. We won't read the whole chapter. I'll just summarize. But he says some of the most relatable verses in all of Scripture. He says, you know what? The good I want to do, I find myself not doing it. The evil, the bad I, want to, I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. And so even when I go to do good, I find evil right there beside me. Can I get an amen? Yes. That's my life. Paul's reading my mail here. So he, he, he talk, goes on to talk about this war within himself, between the, the spirit and the flesh. And that flesh, that's a part of us that loves sin. That's a part of us that loves ourselves. That's the part of us that is against the things of God. We fight that battle within ourselves. And so he says there's war going on. And then finally in verse 24, he asks this great question. Who will deliver me? Who will save me? From this war going on inside of me, praise be to Jesus Christ. He has granted me salvation. And here's what's fascinating about this. In the context of Romans 7, in the context of Ephesians 6, you know what salvation is? It's the ability to fight. That's what salvation is. Because without salvation, Paul's going to say, you're a slave. You have no resources. You have no ability to fight these forces in your life. But through Jesus Christ, because of his salvation, you now have an ability and resources to fight that you used to not have. That's what it means in context. But i got to be honest. I spend large chunks of my life not fighting this battle. I don't know about you. Why do we do that? Why do we ignore this fight? Well, I think there's a, a couple reasons. One, I think we don't fight because it's hard. Because Akuna Matata is the best song in the whole movie. Because it's fun and it's easy. So what if your father's kingdom's in shambles? So what if you were called to be a king? That's hard. This is, all. This is the appeal of the insurance policy view of salvation. Man, good thing I made that decision back then. 
Don't have to go to hell when I die. That'll matter in the future. And I don't have to worry about it right now. I can just coast. It can be easy. Man, that's got an appeal in our world, doesn't it? I think the other reason we don't fight is because we forget. We forget we're in a fight, don't we? So this week was uh, another anniversary of D-Day. And so they had a bunch of stuff in the news, a bunch of stuff uh, on TV and things like that. And it got me uh, remembering what I learned about the Battle of Britain. So the Battle of Britain was early on in World War II. It was in 1940. Y'all, for three and a half months, day and night, the Nazis bombed uh, England. Which means, imagine this, for three and a half months, imagine if there was never a day where you woke up and then fell asleep without being bombed. Can you imagine? Okay, how crazy would it have been if in the midst of that, Winston Churchill, who's a prime minister at the time, gets on TV, he gets on the radio, and he just says, guys, yeah, they bombed us yesterday. I was really hoping they would stop and wouldn't bomb us today. But they did. And so, I don't know, tell you guys, listen, as soon as they stop bombing us, I know we, wanna, we all want to get back to regular life. So as soon as they stop bombing us, we'll get back to regular life, all right? Winston, that ain't going to work. Why? Well, you know what you would say to Winston at that point? You would say, they're not going to stop. They are an enemy army set on invading us and conquering us. They will not stop until they have conquered us. That's not how it works, Winston. Of course, that's not what he did. He got on the radio and gave one of the most famous speeches in all of human history. He said, you know, we're going to fight. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight on the hills. Essentially said, we will fight until every last one of us is gone. Men and women, the, we- the weapons of war in your life, listen, they don't look like bombers with swastikas on them. You know what they look like? They look like busyness. They can, they can look like our flesh's desire for a little more money, a little bigger house, another vacation, a little free time, a, a little more comfort to make us happy. They can look like a job. They promised me importance, uh, authority, success, financial freedom. They can look like the 37 different activities for our kids every day. They will promise, ensure that our kids will have the happy, fulfilled lives that we want them to have. Oh, and by the way, make sure I'm an awesome parent. They can look like temptation, promises to fulfill you. But you know where sometimes it just looks like these inner struggles we have. It, those weapons can look like fears, insecurities that keep us from stepping out in faith. We know God's been calling us to do something, but we refuse to do it. They can look like pride, arrogance, bitterness, unforgiveness, anger. You know, sometimes they just look like broken relationships. They just refuse to heal. Well, let me say to you the same thing we would all say to Winston Churchill. They are not going to stop. They are weapons deployed by your enemy, and they will not stop until they conquer you. These are not random circumstances. We are in a fight. And so let me just tell you, whatever it is, whatever it is that you think is keeping you from following God, listen, they will take as much of your life as you're willing to give them. They will not stop. They are weapons deployed by your enemy, and they are set to conquer you.
That's what Jesus says. Put on your salvation and fight. You don't have to be a slave to those things anymore. And then he promises, as you fight, take heart, because it won't always be this way. There is a future coming where our enemies will be vanquished, and we will experience the fullness of God's salvation. You know, the big nerdy theological term for this is glorification. Probably won't be able to fit this one on here either. Look at that. I got it. No problem. Glorification. Let's hear what Paul writes about. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 55. Paul says this. Behold. That means pay attention. Notice this. Look at this. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? That's right. There's a future salvation coming that God promises. It's what we used to call in North Louisiana the great getting up party. And he says over and over, we will be changed. We will be changed. Paul's not talking about putting lipstick on the pig. He's not talking about just making you a little bit better version of yourself so you can coast through life now. No, no, no. The mortal will put on immortality. We will be changed. That's what Paul's talking about. This is the promise of our future salvation. And so what the Bible calls us to do as believers with this aspect of our salvation Hope. 100% of all of your hope goes here. This is what you're hoping in. This is what you're looking forward to. This is what you're banking on. And see, this is interesting because, you know, if one way we go wrong in salvation is we make it all about the past and all about the future, the second way we go wrong in salvation is we make it all about the present. God, what can you do for me now? Isn't it true that our culture is full of people willing to follow Jesus as long as there's a payoff right here, right now. Guys, I can't tell you how many times as a pastor I've heard something like, I've been coming to church for three months and God still hasn't fixed my marriage. What, why isn't he doing his part? I'm doing my part. Why isn't he fixing things for me? I prayed every day for six weeks and then I read the book on biblical business principles and God still isn't making my business prosper. Why isn't he doing that? God, where's the payoff right here? The problem is, guys, that's not salvation. That's not any kind of salvation the Bible ever promises. That's self-help. That's using Jesus for your own purpose right here and right now instead of using him for his own purposes for eternity, which is what he promises. That's the salvation that you are promised. And so, spoiler alert, if you're just living here in your salvation it will end up with you angry and frustrated at God. That's how it will always end because the scripture tell you, don't put your hope here. Put all of your hope here, 100% of it. So let me ask you this morning, let me invite you to ask yourself, are you using Jesus just to arrange for you the best life right here and right now? 
Are you putting all of your hope in the great getting up party? All of this salvation, this is the great salvation that Jesus has worked for you. This is what he offers. It's a salvation that rests on him and what he's done. It's a salvation that you can fight with. It's a salvation that you can put all of your hope in. And so the question for you this morning is, is that what you're looking for from him? Are you looking for something different? Let me tell you what he is. You know, you know what another word for uh, a savior in the original Greek word is? It also means a rescuer. Another word for salvation is a rescue. Now, I don't know about you. I've never really been tangibly, physically rescued, you know, pulled from a burning building or anything like that. Maybe you have. But I, I heard an interview from someone who knows exactly what that's like. A lady named Jessica Buchanan. She knows what it's like to be rescued because she was held captive for 93 days by Islamic fundamentalists in Somalia. So for over three months, over three months, it was her and just a few others. They were tied up, held at gunpoint, just in the desert. Y'all, not even a roof over their head. Just laying in the sand of the desert until she was rescued by a team of U.S. Navy SEALs. She did an interview with 60 Minutes. I want to read just a, a portion of the transcript of that. And as I read, I want you to hear the words of a person who knows what it's like to be rescued. Jessica says this. She says, then all of a sudden, I feel these hands on me, roughly grabbing at me. I, I try to protect myself. I, I pull the blanket closer on top of me, and then I hear my name. But it's not a Somali accent. It's an American accent. And I can't compute, like I can't understand that somebody with an American accent knows my name. And they say, Jessica, we're with the American military. We're here to take you home, and you're safe. I pull the blanket down from my face, and all I can see is black. Black mask, black sky, and all I can say over and over is, you're Americans, you're Americans, I don't understand, you're American, and I'm still alive. And one of them, he picked me up and he starts running. He runs for several minutes and puts me down on the ground. And I'm still asking who these Americans are. I don't understand who they are and I don't understand what they've done. And then they identify themselves. They knew I was very sick. They have medicine. They have water. They have food. And they've come to take me home. At one point, they thought they heard something. I don't know this group of men who's risked their life for me already. They ask me to lie down on the ground because they're concerned that there may be someone out there. They make a circle around me. They lie down on top of me to protect me, and we lay like that until the helicopter comes in. And they are so kind. They're so gentle. They're trying to assist me getting in the helicopter, and I just throw myself onto that helicopter, and I push myself up against the wall, and I start breathing. I don't start breathing until we actually lift up off the ground. And then they hand me a, fold, a folded American flag, and I just start to cry. At that point in time, I've never in my life been so proud, so very happy to be an American. Men and women, that's quite a rescue. It's nothing compared to the rescue that our Savior has arranged for us. And here's what we do. As he is there with us laying in the sand, reaching down to pick us up, we say, no, 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 no. 
can you actually just make me a little more comfortable here? Like a little nicer pillow, maybe some little better food, maybe a little lean-to hut to shade my head. Or we say, no, 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 no. Can you actually just tell me what to do? I, I really want to do it myself. I want to earn it myself. So you, you tell me how to rescue myself, and, and I'll do it. Men and women, when your rescuer shows up, there is only one thing to do. You go with them, and you let them take you home. That's Jesus' offer on the table for you this morning. If you have never accepted this salvation and gone with your rescuer, you can do that this morning. Just like Paul was talking about, just by putting your faith in him. If that's you, we would love to talk to you today. Let's pray. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.